0: A podcast 1 production Back in 2014 the G20 economic summit came to Brisbane Now everyone thinks that the G20 is just the leader summit all the presidents and the prime ministers gather together It's much more than that It's an interlocking set of events many involving finance ministers and treasury departments and central bankers So during that weekend in October of 2014 many of the world's financial decision makers were also in Brisbane And this was just at the moment that Bitcoin and blockchain, more generally, were hitting the radar screen of all of these finance folks. They didn't really understand it. And if you're in finance, what you don't understand, you won't invest in. That's the Buffett rule again. Now, folks deeply involved in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies in Australia organized an international summit, a half-day affair, where experts in cryptocurrencies would gather to explain to these leaders of finance exactly what all of this new technology meant for them. I was asked to give a keynote. There's a video. We will post that to the Cryptonomics website. And I was asked to act as an MC, introducing various leading minds in Bitcoin and blockchain. It was a fun day. And when it was over and I presented an invoice for my services, the organizers asked me how I wanted to be paid. Would I like Australian dollars, or perhaps would I prefer Bitcoin? Now, at that point, a single Bitcoin was worth $500, so I would have had about 10 of them. I considered it briefly, and I said, thanks. No, thanks. I'll take the dollars. That was that. On December the 17th of 2017, The price of a Bitcoin peaked at around 25,000 Australian dollars. If I had taken my payment in Bitcoin and held it until the peak, I'd have earned a quarter million dollars for an afternoon's work. Now, had I to do it over again, I probably would have taken 90% of my wages in dollars, 10% in Bitcoin, I still would have made five times as much. Lesson learned. Hello, I'm Mark Pesci and welcome to the second episode of Cryptonomics, a series dedicated to exploring and explaining the way cryptocurrencies and the technology underneath them, the blockchain, will transform our entire world. Along the way, we'll learn what makes it all tick, how people are using this technology to do amazing things, and what it all means for the future of money, finance, investing, and the economy. We'll speak to folks who have built successful businesses using the blockchain, some of whom have even created their own successful cryptocurrencies. We'll learn how things work, why they work, and when they don't. By the time we're finished, you should understand enough to make your own investment calls. You'll have the tools you need to investigate any cryptocurrency investment. Is it real? Is it wise? Is it a good investment? We can't answer these questions for you, but you'll learn which questions to ask and the sorts of answers you'll want to receive. But cryptocurrencies, they're only the tip of the iceberg. The whole field of blockchain isn't even a decade old, and it's already working its way into the core of some very established businesses, and it's being used as the foundation for some entirely new ones. Over the next billion seconds, the entire world of economics, everything that's touched by money, will be changed by this new technology. And that's why we're calling this series Cryptonomics. When you look beyond the ripples produced by the rise and fall of the price of Bitcoin, you can see another wave. It's a tsunami of change that will roll over banks and stock markets, even nations. There's a lot of hype surrounding cryptocurrencies. Some of that hype is justified. It's a new way of doing business, and it will force businesses to make way for it. And it's not the first time this has happened. Welcome back to Episode 2 of Cryptonomics, where we'll be asking what makes Bitcoin so special? And specifically, why do people treat Bitcoin like money? For a satisfying answer to that question, let's have a look back at the origins of money. While we may obsess about cash, we don't think a lot about where it comes from. It's just there. But there was a time before cash. 3,000 years ago, people didn't have cash. They traded in kind. They exchanged one good for another good. It's not really clear exactly when people began to trade in gold. That goes back a very long time. Gold is durable, it's malleable, it's very dense. A little bit of gold weighs a whole lot. It's also rare, which means that a little bit of gold not only weighs a lot, it's worth a lot. And people have been trading small bits of gold jewelry for a very long time. Certainly for as long as we've had writing and ledgers that could be baked into the sun to become permanent records. But there wasn't really any need to form the gold into jewelry because gold has value in itself. You could just trade in gold. And around 2,600 years ago, a civilization, the Lydians, they were in what is today southwestern Turkey. They invented the first coin. I've seen these coins. They're tiny. They're not much bigger than a lentil. These Lydian coins were made out of a substance known as electrum. That's a naturally occurring alloy of silver and gold. Something similar to the white gold that we use today in jewelry. That's also gold that's been alloyed with silver. And they were stamped with the image of a lion because that stamp told you it was a real Lydian coin. Now, the Lydians, they lived at the crossroads of the ancient world. There were traders from Persia and Mesopotamia and Phoenicia and Egypt, mixing with traders from the Greek colonies that were scattered through the Aegean Sea and far-flung networks of trade stretching all the way to Sicily and Carthage and southern Spain. Traders needed a portable durable and valuable medium of exchange, something that was small, something that could be counted easily, something that would be instantly recognized by another trader as valuable. So coins were an immediate hit. 600 years later, around the time Augustus Caesar became the first emperor of Rome, coins were in use across almost all of Eurasia, from Britain all the way to China, carried with traders wherever they went. Cash had become indispensable to commerce. And all that cash proved very tempting to folks who, well, they might want to make their own coins. Coins that might look real but wouldn't contain gold or maybe not as much gold as the real deal. Counterfeiting is nearly as old as minting coins. There's a famous story about the Greek philosopher Archimedes, and it tells us how big this problem was in the ancient world. Because stepping into a bath one day, Archimedes exclaimed, Eureka! Which means, I found it. He'd found the way to detect counterfeiting. Now remember what we said about gold. It's very dense. A small amount of it weighs a lot. If you fake a gold coin, you can make it weigh as much as a real gold coin, so you can throw them both on a scale, and you can see that they weigh the same amount. But the coin that's made out of real gold is denser and smaller. And the only way to measure the coin's volume is by immersing it in water and measuring how much water it displaces. The real gold coin will displace a smaller amount of water than the counterfeit coin, even though they weigh the same. So Archimedes gave the world the first counterfeiting detection tool, and that worked for nearly a thousand years. Now, all this time, the Chinese had been minting coins with holes in their centers. It looks a little odd to us, but it proved very practical because it allowed traders to run a string through long stacks of coins. And they basically strung them around them as the first money belts. As they traveled around, they would be wearing their money. And that worked really well until some of those traders got so prosperous they simply couldn't wear all of the coins. They were falling over. So instead, about 1,100 years ago, those traders started to use printed paper. And remember, printing and paper are both Chinese inventions as well. So they used printed paper to represent thousands or tens of thousands of coins. And that way they didn't need to carry the coins around. They could simply hand that printed paper to another trader. And very quickly, the bureaucracy of Song Dynasty China took this idea up as their own, and they created the first paper money. Paper money. Well, people have all sorts of feelings about paper money. Almost all of us carry paper money around with us all of the time we're out of the house. It's everywhere. It's hugely important. And it's also completely ridiculous. When Marco Polo returned from China and wrote about money made from the bark of trees... Europeans thought him barking mad. Money from trees? What kind of lunacy is this? How could it have any value? Wasn't the real value in the scarcity of gold? Anyone could make paper. Anyone could print anything they wanted onto paper, but that didn't give the paper value. And yet, within a few hundred years, all of Europe used paper money too. It was just too useful, too convenient, and a bit too dangerous. Counterfeiting paper money is easier than counterfeiting coins. People have been counterfeiting paper money for as long as there's been paper money. And it was always a capital offense in imperial China because counterfeiting caused people to question the value of paper money. Unlike coins, paper money requires a bit of belief. You have to believe that a merchant has the coin to back up his paper money. You have to believe a government has the reserves of precious metals to back up the paper money they're printing. And if you don't believe, all this paper money becomes nothing more than toilet tissue. So governments have grown increasingly sophisticated in their techniques to outwit counterfeiters. Today's banknotes, they host a range of innovations, from RFID to laser reflectivity to holograms and on and on and on, making it practically impossible to counterfeit. But that's always a bit of an arms race. Every innovation provides, at best, a short-term advantage. Paper money just barely stays ahead of the best counterfeiters. Now, to assure ourselves about money, that we can feel that it's real, it needs three qualities. First, it has to be authentic. You have to know that this paper money came from the Reserve Bank or the Federal Reserve and you have to be able to prove it. Second, you have to be able to count it. Now, that may sound weird, but imagine if it were hard to learn the value of a particular piece of paper money. Counting it would be difficult. It should be easy to assess and audit the value of your money. And third, you can't copy it. Now, what I mean is that if you spend $10 of paper money, you can't copy those $10 and spend them again. Those $10 are unique. This is known as the double spend problem. Physical cash doesn't have this problem, at least not until a color printer became widely available. But the internet, well... Everything on the internet is copied. And I mean this literally. To listen to this podcast, you have to make a copy of it. One that comes from our servers at Podcast One to you on your smartphone or computer, you have made a copy of it. The same thing is true for a video or a web page or anything on the internet. The internet is a gigantic global copy machine, which is great. But what does that mean for money? If you can copy money, doesn't that mean you can spend the same money twice? Isn't that just like printing your own money, like counterfeiting? And this is a big reason why we're still using credit cards to buy things online. Because using a credit card means a bank can keep track of how much you spend and will only let you spend within the limits they set. So although we have this incredible internet and it's created trillions of dollars in e-commerce, we still can't use money on the internet. Which seems very weird to say in 2018. And yet there's been a solution to this problem for a decade. Let's flash back to 2008 when Satoshi Nakamoto published his white paper, Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer electronic cash system. Now, in our last episode, we talked about the big revelation in that white paper, a new accounting system known as the blockchain. But that was only the tip of the iceberg. Blockchain is more than a great new accounting system. It can be used to bring money to the Internet. Now, to bring money to the Internet, you need the three qualities of money, authenticity, auditability, and uniqueness. Satoshi Nakamoto showed how you could do all of this, relying on the fact that people have no inherent reason to trust one another, at least not where money is involved. Now, in our last episode, we explained how blockchain works. In the example I gave, we looked at my travel receipts. That's one kind of data you might want to store on a blockchain. But a blockchain can contain any kind of data you like. The Bitcoin blockchain contains a list of who owns what Bitcoins, and that's all there is on the Bitcoin blockchain, just that list. It's a ledger of ownership. Okay, so how do you make entries on that ledger? Well, this is the clever bit. Anyone who wants to trade in Bitcoins can grab a copy of that ledger. All of the blocks in the blockchain from the very first entry back in January 2009 all the way to the present. That's a big ledger. By the end of 2018, it's projected to be around 200 gigabytes. That's about the size of the drive on your average laptop. And all of that is filled up with a list of who owns what bitcoins. Now, once you grab a copy of that ledger, you download it, you listen And you listen to everyone else trading in Bitcoins. Why? Because they'll be wanting to trade by making changes in the ledger. Changes to the Bitcoin ledger mean one thing. Bitcoins are being transferred from one owner to another. And that can't happen unless, and here's the clever bit, that can't happen unless a majority of folks trading Bitcoin agree to the change. To propose a change in the ledger, the trader first has to tell everyone trading in bitcoins. That's going to be at least hundreds of thousands, if not millions of different traders. And each of these traders then has a chance to examine their own copy of the ledger. Okay, does this change in the ledger look legitimate? Does the person asking for the transfer really have the bitcoins they say they have? And after they inspect it, the traders beam back a reply, either a yes or a no. If a majority say yes, then a new entry is added to the Bitcoin blockchain, transferring ownerships of the coins from one party to another. And if the majority say no, then nothing happens. The request is simply ignored. Now, this is known as a consensus algorithm because it requires the approval of a majority, 51 percent to move forward. And this consensus algorithm is the core of what makes Bitcoin work as internet money. It's all based on distrust. Everyone on the internet wants to ensure that they can spend their own money, but they equally want to make sure that people can't spend money they don't have. So they're going to be very suspicious about any requests to change the ledger. At the same time, they're going to be very careful about any changes they propose to make in the ledger. The consensus algorithm forces everyone trading in Bitcoin to be both suspicious and polite, or else no one gets to spend their money. And that's what Nakamoto meant when he called Bitcoin Peer to peer electronic cash. There's no bank anywhere authorizing transactions as there is with a credit card. The traders on the network all share collective responsibility for ensuring that the transactions authorized are valid by coming to consensus. That consensus process takes the authority the bank provides and shares that authority among the traders doing the banking. And that transfer of power away from a bank, toward the folks who have always been the bank's customers, that's one of the most exciting aspects of the original Bitcoin proposal. The consensus algorithm provides for authenticity, auditability, and uniqueness. It prevents people from spending the same money twice. And these are qualities that money needs. And so with this system in place, Bitcoin can function as reliably as money issued by the U.S. Federal Reserve or the Australian Reserve Bank or as reliably as any Visa or MasterCard or Amex. But there's another quality of Bitcoin, one that made it a lot of fans in its early days and a big reason it's as popular as it is today. One thing has always made it difficult to believe in paper money. The governments that print it. Printing money is a bit too easy. Governments have always been able to print as much paper money as they'd like to because it doesn't require a limited expensive resource like gold. And over the last millennium, that has proven a continuous temptation for governments. Back in 2009, Zimbabwe had printed so much of its own currency that it took a billion of them to have the equivalent value to a dollar. And in the 1920s, Germany printed so much of its currency it took wheelbarrows full of cash to buy a loaf of bread. A government printing press is a license to make money, but money isn't the same thing as value. Value is determined by the market, and the market closely watches how much printing a government does. Print too much money, and the market stops believing in your money. When Satoshi Nakamoto designed his electronic cash system, he confronted that problem directly. No one can just press a button and print more Bitcoins. Bitcoins have to be mined. Now, of course, these are digital bits, so mining is really a metaphor. But what it means is that people who trade in Bitcoin will be paid in Bitcoins if they do work for the Bitcoin network. What kind of work? Keeping the Bitcoin blockchain up to date. Each consensus-approved Bitcoin transaction gets added to the ledger, and eventually enough of these ledger entries are bundled together into a block, just as I bundled the group of my travel receipts together in our example from the first episode. The Bitcoin miners compete to create these blocks, and the miner who wins the race gets to add their block to the blockchain and receives a reward in Bitcoin's. And that's the only source of new Bitcoins, mining. So in that sense, a Bitcoin is a bit like gold, with one big difference. Over the last hundred years, the amount of gold mined each year has remained relatively stable. Bitcoin miners, on the other hand, they earn less over time for their work. In the beginning, back in 2009, a miner would receive 50 Bitcoins if their block made its way into the Bitcoin blockchain. But, of course, that was back when Bitcoins were only worth a few pennies. Now, after 210,000 blocks have been added to the Bitcoin blockchain, and that's a lot of transactions right there, the payout cut in half to 25 Bitcoins. Now, a new block gets added to the Bitcoin blockchain on average about every 10 minutes. So every four years, the payout for mining cuts in half. In 2018... The payout for a miner who adds a block is 12 and a half bitcoins. At the current price of Bitcoin, that's nearly exactly 100,000 Australian dollars. But in 2021, that payout will have again. And in 2025, it will have again and on and on and on. And eventually, around 100 years from now, there simply won't be any more Bitcoin left to mine. The way Satoshi Nakamoto set things up, there will never be any more than 21 million bitcoins. No printing presses grinding away, no destroying the value of existing bitcoins. And this is a big reason why some people go bananas for bitcoin. They see in it a form of money that governments can't devalue. They will always remain scarce. They will always be rare. They will always be valuable. So there you have it, Bitcoin. It's built on a blockchain, but it has other special features such as mining that make it rare and help people believe in it. Because, and here's the catch, like paper money, Bitcoins have no inherent value. Unlike gold, you can't use them for jewelry or electronics. You can only move them around on a ledger, transfer them back and forth, that's it. So for bitcoins to have any value at all, people need to believe. And they do, clearly. Bitcoins that cost a few pennies a few years ago cost a few thousand dollars today. On the other hand, because bitcoins are money that works on the internet, they do have a value that gold doesn't have. They can be used for electronic commerce. But there's a bit of a catch here. Let's say someone is buying something online and wants to pay for it in bitcoin they'll need to request a change in the ledger. That can happen, but it's not fast. It can take many minutes to settle a transaction in Bitcoins. A credit card transaction, that settles in less than a tenth of a second. And so while we do have internet money in Bitcoin, it's not exactly ideal. But as a store of value, because people believe in it, Well, that's become the main reason people buy and sell Bitcoin. As an investment. The same way you'd buy any other commodity as an investment. Gold, bonds, even coins. And after the break, we'll talk to someone who makes his living helping people trade Bitcoin. When I opened this show, I told the story of giving a keynote and running an event at the G20 meeting in Brisbane, and I was offered Bitcoin in return for my work, which I politely declined and threw away a quarter million dollars. Well, it's my great pleasure to welcome to Cryptonomics the fellow who made me that offer. Ronald Tucker is the founder of BitTrade among Australia's first Bitcoin exchanges, He's also taken a leading role at the Australian Digital Commerce Association. That's the peak body helping to guide policy and procedure in all things cryptocurrency. Ron, welcome to Cryptonomics. Thank you, Mark, for having me. So tell me your story. How did you end up starting one of the very first exchanges?
1: Right. Well, my story begins as so many others did, I guess, uh, several years ago in the early days after reading the Satoshi White Paper. I was working in a shared office space in Newtown with a, a number of other budding entrepreneurs. And one of my good friends and, and, and the guy behind that working space walked into the office, I think it was February 2013, and stood at the door like a man on fire saying, folks, has anyone here heard of Bitcoin? And the room went silent. I say there was about 20 of us there. And uh, you could hear a pin drop. Um, and... And no, nobody had heard of Bitcoin, but he was quite passionate about it. And I knew enough about uh, about my good friend Hugo O'Connor to be paying attention to to what it was he was talking about. He's somebody who often sees the future well ahead, horizons ahead. So I had him sit down with me. He showed me the Satoshi white paper and I proceeded to spend the next three days pacing that office and my house, unable to sleep, just obsessed, blown away by by what it is I just read. Um, the paper itself, it's there's... It's simple elegance, yeah, very well done. So, so that's what had me for, for about three days unable to unable to sleep. And at that time, there were just a couple of exchanges out there. Certainly, the biggest being Mt. Gox at the time. Uh, and it was it was a complicated process to be able to get your hands on Bitcoin. You'd have to wire money overseas and and jump through a number of different hoops. So I thought to myself at the time, we we can probably create something here that will look and feel a little bit more familiar to people let's model it after uh you know the the people have done the work the last 100 150 years and that was the big four i said how can we make it look and feel like a, a similar experience to what people are already used to using so i tapped four other folks on the head out of that office uh and we put our heads down for about 45 days and just built and built the first website and and we launched over the next several months, it was a ride, explosive, as the whole Bitcoin and blockchain journey has been over the last several years. So as soon as you opened your
0: doors, you had people coming and saying, yes, I want to buy Bitcoin Absolutely. from you? yep. And they would wire you money and then you would give them
1: Bitcoin? Uh, No, they would simply need to go into their local bank branch, any of the big fours who we originally used at the time and and make a deposit to our account. We'd supply them with a five digit order number, which would be emailed to them and they'd they'd supply that with the deposit. And we would then uh, cross check and dispatch the Bitcoin, usually within four hours. That was our turnaround time. And that was the beginning of the industry. We were the first. Uh, following that, I believe CoinJar came along a month later. And by the end of the year, there were about seven Bitcoin exchanges operating in Australia.
0: When you're opening the exchange, how much does a single Bitcoin cost?
1: At that time, it was about 78 Australian dollars.
0: What was a few pennies probably in what, 2009 and 2010, that's right? That's right. Literally since. So you're talking about something that's already
1: grown in value by almost a thousand fold. That's right. So interestingly, Like I said, it was February that that the concept came. Uh, That was about the time that Cyprus experienced its what they called a financial crisis. Um, For three days, the banks were shut uh, in Cyprus. And what was noted by economists and then subsequently the media was that gold in the region didn't fluctuate the way it was supposed to in a situation like that. First time in, in modern recorded history. And people had been taking their money into this new Bitcoin thing. And we saw a
0: spike. Bitcoin went from a few hundred dollars a Bitcoin to, I think it peaked at around
1: $1,600. That's right, that's right about 1,600 Australia. It was about 1,000 US December 2013. And uh, yes, that's when we knew uh, we were onto something.
0: So already any Bitcoin that you owned had increased by a factor of around twelve thirteen at that time. That's point, correct. Just yep. in that, just that period of time.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, What have you seen around how people have traded Bitcoin? Has it become more sophisticated? Has it become more frothy? Is there more excitement? I mean, we've seen a a big bubble that's somewhat deflated now from where it was at the beginning of 2018. But Mm -hmm. how is that affecting how people are trading?
1: It's, It's interesting. I've been on this journey, I guess, almost six years now. And I've watched essentially the same cycles take place over and over again and it's been more of um, how awareness and knowledge around this space is spreading from one market segment to another market segment. In the early days, it was the switched-on uni kids uh, that were buying the first Bitcoin. By the end of the first year, what we started to see were phone calls coming in from a lot of mom and pops in the suburbs who are a little bit more switched on. They might have a couple of houses in the investment portfolio. And these were people who might have 10% aside for high risk investments. So they'd be looking to put in a few percent into, into Bitcoin. So following that, it just naturally progressed through and, uh, it was actually Facebook where I could sort of keep track the, the I've got about a thousand friends on there. And I suppose the first few people were the more switched on computer savvy type. And then it was, uh, the investors, the people who were, uh, in professional careers that came along about a year into it. And by the last wave, uh, 2017, when it hit its biggest peak at about 20,000 us dollars, 25,000 Australian. That's when I had every man and their dog on Facebook coming, looking for the, for the same answers to the questions. So, When people ask, there's generally two types of exchanges, crypto exchanges out there. Uh, One's a a fixed spot exchange like BitTrade and and most of the exchanges in Australia. And it is similar to a foreign currency exchange at the airport or on any busy street in in the middle of a CBD. Uh, You simply place order. How much Bitcoin do you want to buy or how much cash are you going to put in? A commission is usually charged. uh, And uh, once the funds are received, after proper uh, anti-money laundering processes are followed, we take hundred points of ID, uh, the Bitcoin or cryptocurrency is is dispatched usually within a few hours. The second type of exchange is a live trading exchange, and it operates more like a stock exchange would, uh, like the ASX.
0: So I can say I have a hundred Bitcoin. What
1: am I going to be bid for these? Exactly, exactly. You'll 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 go to the exchange online and, and you'll put in a, a bid or a sell and uh, uh, and wait for your your transaction to be uh, conducted. There are two exchanges, uh, live exchanges in Australia, uh, that will be independent reserve and BTC markets, the rest being fixed exchanges like BitTrade.
0: Now, we've seen, I guess, over that period of time, as Bitcoin has grown in awareness, we've also seen the various financial institutions Mm -hmm. have various degrees of either happiness or discomfort Mm
1: -hmm. around Bitcoin. Could you talk a little bit about that journey as well? Sure, absolutely. Well, this might be a good chance to segue into where we went after BitTrade. Uh, Look, a year in, getting the knocks on the door we were getting from media, from regulators, uh, from from policymakers, wanting to understand more about what was taking place. It was actually the Australian tax office who convened a meeting one year later, so that was about April 2014, and they brought all of the heads of the Bitcoin exchanges about six of us at that time, in, into a room. We also had uh, Law Society was there. We had the Australian Bankers Association, Chartered Accountants Australia, New Zealand. And they had were were in the process of drafting some guidance around the taxation of, of Bitcoin at the time. Uh, but it became very clear within a few hours of us being in that room that there was going to be a need for a proper industry voice and response. So at the end of that day, uh, we had actually formed what we called the Australian Digital Currency and Commerce Association. Today, ADCA, A-D-C-A. ADCA is the, the trade association that represents uh, blockchain and cryptocurrency interests. So it started with just a handful of small Bitcoin companies. Uh, five years later, we're over 100 members strong. And, and uh, they include blockchain startups, crypto exchanges, right to some of the big end of town. So the big five consulting firms are in, a number of law firms, Optus, IBM. That's where we do most of our discussions, I suppose, when it comes to uh, liaising with financial services sector, the, the incumbents, and uh, keeping them informed. So we see this
0: migration of Bitcoin from a peer-to-peer electronic money system that it was essentially going to be kind of almost like a PayPal yep. to now something that's more like Fort Knox. It's a store of value. It's a big that's store right. of value, and. At the same time, what we've seen is that the banking system—whether you think it's the Big Four or, or the global banking system, the large network of banks and the central banks—seem to have this very ambiguous relationship to Bitcoin. Do you want to
1: talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I I can certainly understand their need to to be cautious, you know, become as informed as possible and to see where it's going. It is a new technology. We don't know where it's going. And when, we're talking about something as fundamentally important as as the economics that we are. Central banks, the backbones to our very economies, and, and the large institutions, uh, they have such a tremendous responsibility uh, to uh, to the people and, and to our economy that uh, that they're right to, to take their time and be cautious. But as it's evolved, so has their thinking. They, they I have seen. Uh, these organizations do the right research, involve the right people, and learn as they go. Uh, so it's uh, it's it's been a journey. The journey is not over yet, uh, but uh, I'm very optimistic about where Australia is going and Australian business on this front because of the work that we began early on through the trade association five years ago. People are informed.
0: Where do we see Bitcoin going over the next? So, uh, we're not going to go out 30 years, billion seconds, but even say, let's say, if you're going to cast your eyes forward five years, just Bitcoin, not everything else in crypto, but where do you see that going? Is it just going to remain this
1: store of value or, or will it start to be used differently? I think it will as as the ecosystem and the user experience evolves. Uh, you got, look, I often, when, when I had read that white paper and I, I started to grasp at what this might be, I was reminded of, uh, the internet and email in the earliest of days. I was very lucky in, in the early nineties, I think 1990, my mother was a secretary at a university in Eastern Canada where I grew up. So we had uh, a little bit more access to uh, uh, to the internet than, than would come later. But at that time it was very difficult. We'd have to get your modem, I had to literally build my computer, get the the dial-in for the server, enter my TCP IP settings, and then go through something that looked like a DOS command prompt to be able to send that email. Five years later, we see the emergence of Hotmail. And that was the game changer. It was the user experience that allowed regular people to be able to interact very quickly with it. I think there's a great race on right now around the world Uh, around Bitcoin and the rest of the crypto industry in developing that sort of uh, ace card that that needs to break through. Right now, Bitcoin is essentially three things. It is a store of value. Uh, It is a payment processing network. And it can be traded like stocks and shares, commodities. Uh, It's three things, fundamental things in finance that have never been able to exist as one before. Right now, it's primarily being used as a store of value. But I think in due course, as the user experience evolves, you will see it act more as a payment processing network. The other thing to keep in mind as well, too, is where is it actually needed the most? In the West... There's far less of a demand. We have premium banking services. We have legacy systems. And yes, they're 20, 25 years old, but they work and they work very, very well. Uh, In the developing world, this is where our eyes need to be cast. Uh, There's far more of a need. When Bitcoin, something like Bitcoin, a buck is worth a buck globally for the first time. It removes that dollar disparity. Two, when you have a mobile phone in your hand and a crypto wallet, you have your own bank You're in control. And three, when you have a good idea and are willing to roll up your sleeves and execute that idea, everybody has a fair shake. We're going to see tremendous things come out of the developing world in the next 10, 15 years thanks to Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. Ron, thank you very much for joining us on Cryptonomics. Thank you, Mark.
0: around 2012 or 2013, I I don't remember exactly, but I received a gift from someone I didn't know. This fellow wanted me to have some Bitcoin. He thought I'd find it interesting. It wasn't very much Bitcoin, probably just a dollar or two in value, if I recall correctly. But in order to collect the Bitcoin, I had to install this digital wallet on my smartphone where I kept that Bitcoin securely. Again, I just didn't really think much about it. I went through the motions. It was interesting. I was learning a little bit. And then I got robbed. Now, because Bitcoins are like real cash, and they were stored on my phone like real cash, when someone stole my phone, it means they stole my Bitcoin. Now, they couldn't spend them because the phone was password protected and the app itself had another password. And so those Bitcoins were lost, all two-tenths of a Bitcoin. Now, again, at the peak, those two-tenths of a Bitcoin were worth about $5,000, enough to buy five brand-new smartphones. It's believed that as many as one-quarter of all Bitcoin have been irretrievably lost, just like my stolen Bitcoin. So there will always be far fewer in circulation than have been mined. Bitcoins are even rarer than we think. On the next episode of Cryptonomics, we'll dive into the blockchain. More than just the foundation of Bitcoin, it has the potential to become the cornerstone of our data lives over the next billion seconds. That's on the next episode of Cryptonomics. If you want to learn more about the topics we've explored in this episode or hear more about our guest Ron Tucker, cruise on over to our website at cryptonomics.show you'll find everything there to go deeper, as deep as you need to learn as much as you want. That's cryptonomics.show. Cryptonomics was written and presented by Mark Pesci, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Alex Mitchell and sound production by Matt Nikolich. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search The Next Billion Seconds Cryptonomics on Apple Podcasts. This is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening.